would open our eyes to what Peter would tell us, that we would be able to perceive what he is intending to communicate, Lord, that our uh, lives would be identified and marked by these attributes, that we would not be stagnant, that we would not be like a, a river which is dammed, but Lord, that we would be flowing with new life in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Second Peter is a wonderful epistle. The beginning of Second Peter gives us a very wonderful insight into the heart and mind of what it means to be an apostle. And when we read what Peter has written in this passage, we see that Peter has a vested interest in the formation of these disciples into maturity. As young people, as a church filled with many young people, we must be aware that the Christian life is not just a category. It's not like a flavor It's not a hobby that we're into, but rather it is a description of what God has done in us and is doing in us. There is a destination that you must arrive at as a believer. And what Peter explains here is that this is something that's rooted and grounded in the gospel. This doesn't come from you, but rather it comes from Christ who raised us up with him, and it must flow from his victory. So with that in mind, I want to look at four aspects of today's passage. The humility that marks an apostolic leader, it's identified here in these first few verses. I want to look at gospel indicatives, and that's a very big word, which it's helpful to learn big words sometimes. An indicative is something that indicates what has already happened. And so this pattern of indicatives, and then the next thing we're going to look at, gospel imperatives, indicatives and imperatives are the bookends of Christian discipling. That is what Christ has done for you that you could never do on your own, and now what you must do because of that. All of the epistles are in this framework. If you look at Ephesians chapters 1, 2, 3, it's the gospel over and over again in various ways, how it applies to the person, how it applies to the church, how it applies to what God has done through redemptive history in sending his son to purchase a people. And then chapters three, uh, 4, 5, and 6, if you can recall them, are all about what you should do. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, obey your masters. Children, obey your parents. It's all about what you need to do now because of what has been done already. And so this idea of indicatives and imperatives, although they're big words, it's, it's helpful to have those terms so that you can remember the nature of gospel sanctification. It is not because of what you can do, but it's rather because of what God has done for you already through Jesus Christ. What he has done becomes a foundation for and the means by which you can build upon it. Paul says in Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians that you must be careful what foundation you build on. And so if you if you don't have this understanding that you aren't laying a foundation, but rather you're building on a foundation, then your building will be uh, structurally uh, wary. It'll be dangerous. Your Christian life will always be uh, susceptible to the shakings of life. But rather, if you build your heart, mind, soul, your, your way of thinking about the faith on this foundation, that what Christ has already done and it's finished, and there's nothing that needs to be added to, if you understand that, then you can build rightly. And so uh, 
that is the structure of this beginning part of the epistle, and that is the full, that's the format or the framework to, to understand all of the epistles in, and really all of the way that we approach the gospel and approach sanctification. And then finally, the blessing of reminder. It's very often the case that we're very frustrated whenever we relearn stuff. You know, it, it's as if it's as if we think we're in kindergarten and we're relearning our phonics or our letters or two plus two equals four. That's not what the Christian faith is about. Reminder is vitally important, and it's a blessing. It's a grace. It's not something to be uh, to be avoided. It's not it's not to be avoided such that I know Jesus died for me. So what? Let's move on. I've heard that before. That's not what the gospel is, and it's it's important for you to understand that reminder is very, very helpful tool. So let's get into to today's text. First, Simon opens in, with an address. He welcomes his audience, and he then says that they have a faith that is like ours. Now, that ours is not the royal we. Have you ever heard the royal we? Oh, well, we think that's not a good school for you to go to. Or, oh, well, we need to clean up our house. I say that all the time to my wife. Well, we need to clean up the house today. And what I mean by that is, you need to clean up the house. It's not one of these kind of like bait and switch deals here. Peter is writing not just as an apostle commissioned by Christ, but he's writing as an apostle who has an apostolic team. Peter's been forming churches, visiting churches, raising up leaders, and so he says it's a faith like ours. This this collective noun, this collective pronoun, which describes Peter and his team, those who are traveling with him, establishing these churches, he's writing to this church in order to help them understand that the nature of their faith is exactly the same as theirs as apostles. What this does is this disarms any argument of some sort of hierarchy within the church. That is, these apostles are these super faithful people, these people who can ne- you could never become like them, and he immediately begins to relate to them on this level of formation, spiritual fatherhood, and bringing them into maturity. It's a faith like ours. This also succinctly represents the gospel in just one verse. Look closely. To those who have attained a faith of equal standing. This is a level playing field. There is, Although there is difference in role and function, there is not difference in equality. So much of the Enlightenment uh, agenda since the 1650s and on forward in Western thought has all, all been about getting rid of the distinction of persons or roles. That is, there shouldn't be any leadership because we're all equal. What, what was the challenge or the rallying cry of the, the French Revolution? Peace, land, and bread. And equality, fraternity, and what was the last one? Liberty, right? And, and so they, they attempted to set up a society that was getting rid of every sort of structure. There's no official leaders. There's no official followers. Everybody's just equal. We see this today with the culture's in, uh, intentional dismantling of the differences in men and women. That is, role and function and who they're created to be and what they've been gifted by God with. That doesn't mean that men and women are unequal. It means they've been commissioned by God to do something different. 
And the difference of role does not create a difference of equality. Women are just as equal in person, value, worth as men. And so here, this equality that exists between the apostle and the disciples does not mean that he's not an apostle. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have authority to write to the church and command them what to do, but he is saying that it doesn't set up a second class system, a second tier, as in, we're these apostles and you are these peon church members that we need to straighten out. And if you have a leader who has this sort of attitude, it's a dangerous position for them to be in. And so Peter here is saying that the faith is of like nature. It's of equal standing. Why is it of equal standing? Because it doesn't come from them. Look closely. It says a faith of equal standing with with ours by the righteousness of God. The faith which is the apostles and the faith which is on those who Simon Peter is writing to did not come from them. It came from God. He doesn't consider them to be beneath him because of where their faith comes from. They've not obtained this faith because of what they've done. They didn't earn this faith. Ephesians tells us plainly that grace has come about through faith, that it's not a result of your works, lest you would boast, but rather it's a free gift of God. And so the faith is of equal standing of its like nature. It's not because of what the apostles have done or what these believers have done, but rather it comes by the graciousness of God. It comes because of what Christ has done. That is how the faith comes to you. So let's look at this faith. Peter tells them a number of things which have already taken place, and then he begins to build on to that what they must do in light of it. So these indicatives, these things that they are to understand have already taken place. They're they're statements which indicate a reality or statements which point to a reality which has already taken place. In three verses 3 and 4, his divine power has granted to us all things. Look at the nature of these verbs. They're all past tense. His divine power has granted to us all things. That's a past tense verb. You do not need more grace from God. In, in first, uh, Second Peter, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There's going to be a wonderful wedding today. I'm excited to be in it. I'm excited that they're getting married. But guess what? Single men, you do not need a wife to have life and godliness. And if you think you do, you are misunderstanding the nature of the grace of God. There is sufficient grace for you at all points of your life because of what this says. It has been apportioned to you everything that you need for life and godliness. And what that means is not that you don't still need to work a job to get food, not that you shouldn't pursue a wife or a husband, not that you shouldn't attempt to grow in maturity, but those all come from the things which are truly necessary. The things which are truly necessary are a righteous standing before God by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from anything that you can bring to the table. And if that is the foundation of your life, then this is true for you. You have been granted these things. How has it been granted? He says, through the knowledge of him. That is, when you come to know what has already been uh, taken place, that God did 2,000 years ago through the man Christ Jesus, when that begins to be in your heart, in your mind, when that begins to be functioning, then that is how you come into this place in which you're granted grace. It's not done apart from the knowledge of God. It's done in accordance with the knowledge of God through the knowledge of of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now look at what takes place in this next verse. This is amazing. 
by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises. What's a promise for? The past or the future? The future. A promise is not for the past. The past has already come, come about. You can't change yesterday. And so these very great promises, which Peter is talking about, are not about what has already taken place, but rather what is, what, where we're all going, where this whole thing is, is intended to go so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This gets very little attention in today's uh, overemphasis of heaven and hell theology, as in where are you going to go when you die? If you got hit by a car leaving this meeting, you know, would you go to heaven or hell? Overly emphasizing that forgets this whole aspect that God created us in his image originally. Genesis tells us plainly that he made us male and female. And now we have been remade in the image of our Redeemer. And we have been predestined by him to share in the divine nature. Now that is a glorious, wonderful promise. That's a great promise. This doesn't mean that we become God. In no way is Peter saying that you become God in essence or person, but rather that you share in the fellowship with Christ. You can taste God's joy, God's love, God's peace. All of those things which you theology students have been studying about the communicable attributes, those things which you can know about in a, even in a little degree, that's a partaking in the divine nature. You have the greatest gift of all, not grace for circumstances, not grace for, for situations, but rather the grace of knowing God heart to heart, his Holy Spirit fellowshipping with your spirit to uh, accomplish a unity with Jesus Christ so that it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. That's the partaking of the divine nature that Peter's talking about here. God's granted us everything that we need for life and godliness, so there's no striving to obtain what you need. Everything that you need's been provided for. Everything that you want, you work for, right? So this, this understanding of the, the Christian faith is is extremely important to understand that we're only building on what has already taken place. You do not perform the atonement. You are not sinless before God in order to justify the many. That's all been done for you. And now you are fighting from victory, not for victory. If you um, have ever seen movies like Saving Private Ryan or any, any sort of war movie, think about the nature of the, the fight. There is a very different mindset in the person who's on the front lines than the person who's in the back supply rooms, you know, distanced by, from the front lines by trains, planes, automobiles. The, there's a lot of difference between the front line and the supply room. And this is what it means as a Christian to fight from the place of Christ's victory. You are not fighting for victory, you're fighting from victory. It's, uh, to, to bring out another war movie, uh, I think it's uh, The Blue and the Gray. I'm not sure the title of it, but it's the one with... Lawrence Chamberlain, and they're on this mountain in Gettysburg, and they're at this time where they're, they're, it's a very important battle. If they lose this, if they get outflanked, they will lose the war. But the reason why they're confident at this point, even though their resources are thinning and their men are getting tired, it's been a long, hot day, the reason why they're confident is because they have the high ground. And running down the mountain they fix bayonets and take out the enemy army because they are fighting from a position of strength, not from a position of lack, not from a position of weakness. 
And so this is what it means for a Christian, for you to fight your sins, the ongoing besetting sins, the situations which happen, your, uh, your own uh, immaturities, these things which we are warring against, these very attributes which Peter then lists, you are not fighting to establish your righteousness before God. And if you are not sure of that, you definitely won't win the fight. And there's a more important thing to focus on before you are attempting to become more mature. You have to be founded before you can be mature. And so this is the Christian gospel. You are fighting from victory, not for victory. Christ becomes like us. He takes on flesh in order that we would be able to become like him. This is God's eternal decree that God, the son, would come in the person of Jesus Christ. He would take on humanity so that we could truly have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, which is what Hebrew says. In like nature or in the same idea, he became like us so that we could become like him. He is making us in his image. And this is exactly what Peter is talking about. The Christian gospel is not just the cleansing of the person from sin, but also it's setting you up to be able to fellowship with the divine. It's not just as if your slate has been wiped clean and then that's it. Your, your slate is wiped clean, but it's not done just so that you can get a ticket to heaven but rather so that you can fellowship with God. This is the realization, this is the actualization of the original purpose of men. We were made in God's image, the reason being was that he would be able to fellowship with us. He didn't make us in his image so that we could then, you know, just be unique creatures apart from him, but rather we were made in his image because he wished to extend that love which he had in himself eternally into a time and a space creation, people who would be true humans. This is where we're going, to fellowship, to be partakers of the divine nature. So these indicatives, these things which have already happened, set us up for things which we now must do. Again, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. You are not attempting to establish your righteousness before God. But because you have been made righteous, because you have been made holy, you are to be holy. And so this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, because you've been given everything that you need, because God's given you every grace, you now must appropriate those graces. You must take hold of those graces and begin to use them. God has set you up with a mighty toolbox, and it's now your turn to get to work. And so Peter then begins to give us a description of those things which we are to build into our lives. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Again, look, the, the nature here of this verse is that you are supplementing, you're adding on to a foundation of faith. You're not creating anything that doesn't exist already. You're not attempting to be justified by God, but rather you are resting on and working in the framework of having already been justified by faith. You, upon knowing that Jesus Christ dies for you, are in faith, and from that position, you begin to work. For this very reason, make every effort. Look at the nature of these words. He says, for this very reason. He says, in the light of what's already taken place, what's already done, do something. This is that, what I mean by imperatives. Indicatives lead to imperatives. Because Christ has died on the cross and been raised in newness of life, don't continue walking in sin. Because you've already been justified, now allow that justification which is positional in nature, to become real, to become worked out, to become rubber meets the road, boots on the ground, if you will. It, this is 
is the application of your potential holiness, or that is your justification by faith, to actual holiness, that is your sanctification now. So we know that we will one day stand before God, we will see him in heaven, we will see him in a redeemed humanity, a new heavens and a new earth. And from that place, we know that there is no sin in heaven. We know that there is no uh, ongoing frustration with character flaws or immaturities in heaven. God's will is perfectly done according to our Lord's prayer. And that perfect holiness, which exists in our in the future state, is beginning to tack its way back upstream, if you will. That progressive sanctification is a distinct mark of the believer, and it's important that you begin to recognize these things in your life. And so Peter begins to list these things. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. These qualities are descriptive of the person of Jesus Christ. These are not moralizing ideas. These are not things that would be ideal if it were the case. It it would be good or it would be right. Rather, Peter is getting these from examining the life of Christ. What Christ did when he walked the earth, performing miracles, signs, wonders, articulately teaching the gospel, and also performing signs and wonders, revealing the heart of the Father— he exhibited these signs or these characteristics, these these uh, attributes in his life, and so we are being remade in his image. Therefore, these must come about in our lives. So Peter lays out these, and then he begins to say why it's important that these take place. You absolutely must grow and mature, not in order to earn salvation, but in order that we would be good instruments of the grace of God in remaking the world. Remember how I said God's given you all the tools? Well, to extend the metaphor, we are tools in God's hand. We've talked about in the last few weeks, God is in the business of remaking the world through the gospel. That is, the gospel will ripple. It says in, in, I think, Psalm 105, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They shall hear and remember and return to the Lord. God is in the business of remaking the world, and it is you and I to be hammers, chisels, screwdrivers, reciprocating saws in the hand of the Lord. I want to be a sledgehammer, but I don't know what I am. But, but that is what you are called to be. You are to be functional. You are to be, to be a tool in the hand of the Lord. Where do I get that idea? I get that idea from the verse 11, uh, sorry, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. This is a sure foundation for you that you have been justified by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, not your work, but rather God's work. And now he's remade you in order to remake the world. Just as Adam was formed so that Eve could be taken out of his side, you have been formed so that the world would be made new, not through you, but rather through what Christ has done in you. And that will become a tool in God's hand. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. What did Jesus say concerning fruit? By this my Father is glorified, my Father is pleased, that you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. It's not enough for you to bear fruit. I have a wonderful garden in progress, and there are some plants which are bearing fruit. Thanks be to God. Paul says that, We can water and we can sow, but God causes the growth. I've done those two things, but I'm not making any green beans. Just 
can't, I don't know how to do it. It's not enough for you to bear fruit. Why is that? Why am I saying that? Because there are these things called squirrels and rabbits. I put a pepper plant in the ground one day. I come back tomorrow. The pepper plant's not there. It's been cut off right at the ground. The idea is that you would not be just bearing fruit, but that your fruit would remain. It's important that there is a harvest. It is not enough to begin a work and then have that work end in futility, but rather it must mature. There must be a harvest at the end of the season. And so Peter here is saying, if these qualities are in you, you can be sure that you will be effective because without these qualities, you will be abrasive, you will be harsh, you will not be loving. You will be uh, condemning of those who are struggling in sin. You will be at war with your brothers and sisters. You'll, cra- you'll cause disunity. If these attributes are not in place in your heart, you will be like a wrecking ball. Maybe I don't want to be a sledgehammer after all. But the idea here is that you must be putting these qualities into your character, not in order to earn righteousness, but in order to show that what Christ has done is truly authentic. That's why he says to confirm your calling and election. It doesn't mean to cause. It says to confirm. It means to verify that there is actual authentic work of God, not some just man-centered attempt to clean yourself up. This is confirming of election, not causing election. And so this is the Christian gospel as it's understood in rippling back from where we know we're all going to time, space, here and now. It matters, according to the gospel, how you treat your wife, husband, children, spouse, parents, employers, friends. It matters. It matters that these things be identified in your life, not just by you. It's easy to say that you've got these things, but it's a little harder to say for, for another person to say they're in you if they're really not. And so this is where we are to go as believers We are to be in the business of rooting out the things which are wrong and placing in the things which are right. And we know those things which are right because of the word of God, not because of our own opinion of how we should act or how we should treat others, but rather are are the ways of our lives in tune with these things. If someone has no grace in your life, it's not a sign that they haven't achieved something. It's rather a sign that they are spiritually dead. There's, again, another metaphor that I have with the gardening world. When you have a tree, if it's had too harsh of a winter, there's something that you can do in the spring if you don't see leaves and buds popping out of it. It's called the bark test. You take a pocket knife and you scrape a little bit of the bark away. And if there's green underneath, there's maybe some hope. But if there's no green underneath and it's brown, it's toast. Get rid of it. Chop it down. There's no reason to expect anything, any life coming from that. After, the, after this point, after doing the bark test, if you don't see anything true under there, you can chop it down because it's dead. And Peter is not saying if you aren't putting these things in your life, you're not becoming saved. He says if these things are not part of your life, it's dangerous for you because it's indicating something that it may be the case that you're walking in hypocrisy. He says, verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was already cleansed. I promise this will be the last, well, I don't promise that. Another application, recently my wife got glasses online, and when she put them on, she was like, oh, wow, 
because she wasn't able to see something across the room. And then when she put on the glasses, she was able to read it. And it was this amazing moment for her. And then she would take them off and not be able to see. This is Peter saying that those who forget that they've been washed already, those who aren't at all concerned how their life is being formed, how their character is being formed as they're growing up, maturing, as they're entering adulthood, as they're beginning or continuing the Christian life, if they're not concerned about these things, they are so nearsighted that they are considered to be blind. You don't have to actually be blind to be blind enough not to be of any use. He's saying that this this is such a dangerous indication of what's going on in their heart, their mind, that they should have cause for concern, and therefore they should wake up and repent. And so here, this is the... Uh, the idea that Peter is giving a, a litmus test, a bark test, if you will, for what's going on in the heart of the believer, or in this case, in verse 9, uh, possibly the unbeliever, the unrepentant. And here, this is the test that we would use, not only of ourselves, but also others. This is a wonderful calling. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. The, to me, verse 10 is very interesting because he's saying you're only confirming that's, that which already exists. You're not causing your calling or election. You're confirming it. But then he says, if you have these things, you will never fall. In some way, I think this verse is indicating that if you're putting these things into your life, it, it's not uh, exactly like training wheels, but it's maybe like bumper bowling. There's no way to not hit some of the pins in bumper bowling. And so here he's saying, if these things are happening, you're not causing something, but you are adding stability. And I think it's important to understand that as, as we walk. We are not seeking to be justified, but that does, doesn't mean that we can't participate with the Spirit of grace. God enables us to participate with him, but we must participate. It's not as if God is causing you to do all these things, and you don't have to uh, extend your hand, so to speak. So he says to be diligent to do this, that means you can be undiligent, you can be negligent and neglectful, so you must be diligent, and then he goes on to say why these things are being said to them again. Peter, in establishing these churches, had of course given them many years, sometimes uh, it's indicated in Acts that they would spend years at these various churches as they were going through the Mediterranean and starting up these new faith communities uh, that believe that the Messiah has come. He he would spend time, probably years, at the very least a few months in these various places, and he would have given them this message already. But he says, the reason I'm retelling you is that I need to stir you up by way of reminder. Um, it's, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's very often the case that you think you've already covered this ground. But it is also the case that you may have covered it before, and you understand this idea or this doctrine in your mind, right? I know many things about God in my mind, but by my heart, are, is my heart in line with that knowledge or not? There can be a disconnect between what you believe in your head and what you know to be true in your heart. The original language of the scriptures was Greek, and there are two different words. One is gnosis, knowledge, and then there's another word that is epigenosis, and it means a knowledge that is experiential. 
And the difference between the two types of knowledge is that, that same difference, what you understand intellectually, what you intellectually agree with, and then what's true in your heart. We know plainly that the Pharisees, those who caused a bunch of trouble for Jesus, we know that they knew the scriptures. But at one point, Jesus says, the reason you are mistaken is you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. What does he mean by that? They have the scriptures memorized at that point. Jesus is saying that by their heart, by the way that they live, they betray the fact that they know it in their head. And so this is where reminder comes to serve the believer. It is not enough to know the intellectual facts of the gospel and never revisit them again because you've already heard that once before, but rather to revisit these in order that you would be able to take stock of what truly is known in your life what's become manifested or what's become apparent to be a lifestyle, to, to be the, the outflowings of the heart. And so this reminder is a vital tool and it's good for us. It's not enough to know something once, but rather we must, absolutely must revisit. And so the, the heart knowledge and the head knowledge are to be uh, joined in uh, together at the same time. And this is what a true belief means. A true knowledge means head and, head and heart agreement, not one or the other. We often long for deeper revelation. I've noticed this, especially in, you know, charismatic circles. People are always wanting, well, what, you know, what's the Lord saying? I hear that a lot. They're, they're trying to go around and see these guys who may or may not be prophets or whatever, and they're always trying to get like a deeper revelation or, you know, what's the Lord doing today? I'm all for, uh, you know, continuing to hear from the Holy Spirit as he guides in the particulars of certain things, but you don't need any deeper revelation. Everything's been given to you, according to this verse. Everything that pertains to life and godliness has been revealed. And so at this point, you must revisit. You need to revisit the foundations, not find some sort of new revelation out there in dreamland or vision land or, or what have you. We need to once again see the great vision of God that you and I, we, are being made not only in the image of our Creator, but also after the image of our Redeemer. That is what Peter is doing in these passages. Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Many young believers, they begin to war against particular sins in their life, and then at some point they might gain some victory. Well, I'm not as angry anymore. I don't drink as much as I do, did anymore. I'm, I'm no longer cheating my employer. I'm now being honest in my business dealings. I'm now treating my spouse right. And they think at that point, well, I've done, I'm, I'm good. I can now just coast. There's no police on the highway. Let's just set it to 75. Cruise control, we're good. There's nothing to watch out for. There's no sort of problems down the road. But that's not what Peter says. He says, you know these things, and you've been established in them. So if that's the case, if they're established in them, why is he reminding them? Because you have been predestined from before the foundations of the world to be remade after the image of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says that the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in him that is in Jesus, and therefore you have been uh, given a calling of holiness. And I don't know about you, no matter how many good character qualities I've had, I don't think anyone could have accurately called me holy at any point. And so this is a goal which cannot be completed 
in a year and a decade, but rather takes your whole life. The reason they are being reminded is because they forget. And even if they don't forget, they need to be encouraged to be about it. To not lollygag. That's one of my favorite old, you know, dad words. My dad would tell me, don't lollygag. And I like it because it's kind of like an onomatopoeia. It, it kind of has within the the sound of the word a description of what's going on. You're just kind of floating through life, you know, kicking the can down the road. It, you're not actually about becoming a mature believer. You're just coasting. And so Peter is trying to wake them up from their coasting. And so he says, I think it right as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Being reminded of these things stirs you up to begin to do them. And so we need to be about it. We need to get to work. He says in verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Peter understands that his life is coming to an end. And whenever you think about, you know, maybe perhaps you've been with someone who is passing away, I've been with a few. I had I had one grandparent pass away that I was not there for. I had another grandparent pass away that I was there for. But the last few days of their life, they're not talking about what's on Twitter and what is going on with the lottery or politics, usually. They're talking about those things which are very, very important. And the things which Peter is referencing here are his wish list for this church. These are the things which, if if only they listen to one thing, he wants them to listen to this epistle. He's saying, I'm, I'm at the end of the ticket. Uh, you know, the, I can see the race is about to be finished, and I have one last chance to remind them of certain things to put in their life. And these things are vitally important. Faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These, of course, are the fruits of the Spirit in a different form or in a different listing, but he says to be about making them take place in your life. You're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and this is Peter's final chance to get this point across. I think it's right that we take time routinely to revisit foundations, and it's it's not often the case that you hear an exhortation to do things like love your neighbor. It, these things don't really, you know, highlight or they don't they don't capture the major focus often. We're, we're more concerned with the practicals. But here, Peter is giving the underlying principles which will characterize, which will picture and color every relationship that you have. Everything that you do will be changed if you put these character attributes in your life. It's not enough that you would be a good employee if it's all external and show. But if you're a good employee out of true love and brotherly affection, then it counts. It's not enough that you treat your husband or wife right in order that you just don't get in trouble. It's important that you do it out of love because if it comes from love rather than from your pride of not wanting to be seen as someone who's full of anger, then that means it's coming from the grace of God and not from your own self-effort. These character attributes should be seen regularly. You should take stock of what's happening in your heart. Do you really, does your life really accord with these things? Are you really filled with self-control? Are you, are you given to your passions? Are you carried off by any passing interest that takes, you know, that, that pops up in your life? Or do you really know I'm focused on this one aspect or this one dimension of life because Christ has called me to be responsible, to be faithful in this area? 
These attributes, which Peter lists here, should be revisited from time to time. You should remind yourself of them. You should, you should look at your life and say, does my life accord with these? And again, these are indicatives. These are not imperatives. Don't look at your life, young, young believers, and say, well, it doesn't look like I have any of these, and despair. But rather, look at these, take stock of what's going on in your heart, and then remind yourself, well, I'm not doing this to earn God's favor, but rather I'm doing it because God has already shined his light upon me in the face of Jesus. And then from there, say, God, help me. The way that you appropriate grace in that moment is you call upon the knowledge of God. He says that you've been granted everything through the knowledge of him. And so remind yourself, not just of these character qualities, but also what has already taken place, that you have been justified by faith through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, that he defeated all of your enemies. And because of that, you can begin to defeat those things in your life, which still remain. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do also thank you for Peter and his epistle. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us an ability to take stock of what's happening in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, I ask that your conviction would come and that you would remind us of those things which we need to repent of. Also, Lord, give us the grace in the moment to appropriate the grace which is already ours, according to this passage, that we would not be longing for some new revelation, but that we would be willing to revisit those things which we know. Lord, we thank you for establishing us, not allowing us to have participated in any way, but that you alone would get the glory from our faith. Lord, we ask you that you would put that heart that was in Peter in ours, that we would not consider ourselves better than our brothers and sisters, but Lord, that we would would rightly uh, relate to them in faith, in love, in brotherly affection. Lord, we pray as we go forth from this place that you would allow us to be tools in your hand, that you would remake the world through us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.